At Digging Deeper, we want to do everything we possibly can to protect these babies from sickening creatures. We refuse to sit and watch from the bleachers. The Ugly Truth. Hard to listen to, but impossible to ignore. Here struggled Jennings and his daughter Brianna with a cry for help. And then we'll get started on The Ugly Truth. Gonna be a horror story with a scary dice. Angels fly with their guns out, causing hella fire when Mother Mary cries. I heard the lies, but I seen the truth. They're gonna silence you if you bring the proof. They gon' call you crazy when you call them out. They try to box us in, but we can box them out. Don't dare ask me what I'm talking about. If you ain't listen yet, then you'll never hear it. We gon' pray to God and we gon' stand up. Got an army here, I know the devil fear. Yeah, the future's clear when you know the past. And that train is coming and it's rolling fast. Gotta fix the path, it's on a broken track. There's no time for us to be. Holding back now, we need some leaders to wake up the sleepers. Make believers out of non believers. Let freedom of speech ring through the speakers. Take the filthy rich to the cleaners. Shine our light, baby. High beamers. Don't let sex crimes be a misdemeanor. Protect these babies from these sickening creatures. I refuse to sit and watch from the bleachers. Huh? That's right. We are not going to sit on the sideline and take Mm-mm. this anymore. Thank you very much to Struggle Jennings and Brianna and the entire crew of independent artists. But right now, it's a disturbing subject. It's the ugly truth. The ugly truth of Roe v. Wade. If you haven't heard of the background story behind Roe v. Wade then it's time you learned. Yep. Let's take a listen to this. This is the true story behind Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court ruling that effectively legalized abortion through all nine months in the United States. The real name of Jane Roe was Norma McCorvey. In 1969, Norma was a 21-year-old single woman in Dallas, Texas, who was struggling financially and regularly abusing drugs and alcohol. She was also pregnant with her third child. She had surrendered custody of her first child to her mother and placed her second child for adoption. With her third child, she sought an abortion, but abortion was illegal in Texas. At the time, abortion was only legal in a handful of states, like California and New York, and Norma didn't have the means to travel to one of those states. Based on advice from others, Norma even began to lie that she'd become pregnant from a gang rape in hopes that it would make it easier to obtain an abortion. It was one of many lies that Roe v. Wade would be based on. Norma became the target of two young and ambitious lawyers, recently out of school, who wanted to change the abortion laws in America, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey. They took Norma out to lunch when she was five months pregnant, drank beers with her and got her kinda smashed, and convinced her to agree to file suit to challenge the abortion laws in Texas. Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade would represent the state as defendant. Weddington would later admit to using Norma for her own ambitions to challenge abortion laws. She said that Norma was just a vehicle for presenting larger issues, and that all Jane Roe did was sign a one-page affidavit. She was pregnant and didn't want to be. That was her total involvement in the case. In fact, Weddington said that if she had to do it over again, she wouldn't even use McCorvey as the plaintiff. Weddington and Coffey kept Norma completely out of the loop when planning their case, and Norma didn't even attend a single trial hearing. If Weddington really wanted to get Norma an abortion, she could have. 
as she was heavily involved in an abortion referral network in Texas. Weddington had the resources, but she never mentioned this to Norma because apparently that would mean losing the only plaintiff that she had with the necessary legal standing to challenge the law. How ironic that Weddington championed abortion access for all women by secretly withholding an abortion from her own client. So during the trial proceedings, Norma gave birth to a baby girl and placed her for adoption. That's right, Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade never even had an abortion. Norma became a poster child for the abortion movement while never having an abortion herself. A three-judge panel in Texas ruled in Weddington and Coffey's favor, but the state immediately appealed and Roe v. Wade made its way up to the Supreme Court. In 1973, the Supreme Court handed down their ruling, along with another abortion case, Doe v. Bolton. The real name of Mary Doe in Doe v. Bolton was Sandra Kano. She was a poor 22-year-old mother of three in Georgia. After she became pregnant with her fourth child, Sandra met with a lawyer named Margie Pitts Hames, seeking legal help to get custody of her children in foster care and then to divorce her husband. Despite the fact that Hames filed suit on Sandra's behalf to obtain an abortion, Sandra maintained that she in fact never wanted an abortion at all. She said it was not my signature on any documents agreeing to one. She says that Hames forged her signature on the abortion documents, or that Hames slipped it into the papers she thought she was signing regarding the divorce and sole custody. Like Norma, Sandra also never appeared in court after her initial court hearing. When she found out that Hames was seeking an abortion for her, she fled to Oklahoma to save her baby. The lawsuit filed against Georgia Attorney General Arthur Bolton challenged Georgia's law, permitting abortion only in cases of rape, severe fetal deformity, or threat to the mother. A three-judge panel district court declared portions of the Georgia law unconstitutional, and the case made its way to the Supreme Court to be decided along with Roe v. Wade. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The decision in Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 ruling by nine men. Writing the majority decision, Justice Harry Blackman invented a legal framework based on an arbitrary three-trimester measurement of pregnancy. This was not based on a medical understanding of pregnancy or of fetal development, but it was simply a tool to justify abortion during different times of pregnancy. According to Roe, during the first trimester, abortion could not be restricted. During the second trimester, restrictions could be made for so-called health reasons, and during the third trimester, abortions could be restricted entirely, so long as the laws contained exceptions for cases when they claimed it was necessary to save the life or health of the mother. But Doe v. Bolton defined health so broadly as to include physical, emotional, psychological, familial health, and the woman's age. Basically, any justification for a third trimester abortion could fall under such a health exception. Today, America is one of only seven nations worldwide that allows abortion for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy. The legal foundation for abortion is total nonsense. Justice Harry Blackman's argument in Roe v. Wade ultimately concluded that a woman's choice to have an abortion was covered under this supposed right to privacy. That's right, in order to make abortion on demand the law of the land, Blackman effectively ruled that killing a child in the womb is justified because it is private. Furthermore, the right of privacy as defined by Blackman has a very weak foundation legally. 
The right of privacy originated in the 1965 case Griswold v. Connecticut, in which the Supreme Court decided that certain state restrictions on contraception were unconstitutional because there is a right of privacy for married couples that protects their ability to obtain contraception. This right to privacy for married couples has a famously vague foundation. Justice William Douglas wrote that penumbras formed by emanations from various parts of the Constitution gave married couples this right to privacy. What is a penumbra? According to the dictionary, the partially shaded outer region of the shadow cast by an opaque object, or the shadow cast by the Earth or the Moon over an area experiencing a partial eclipse, or the less dark outer part of a sunspot surrounding the dark core. So here's how it all breaks down. Within the Constitution, there are penumbras formed by emanations that recognize the right of privacy of married couples to obtain contraception. The Supreme Court case Eisenstadt versus Baird said that the right of privacy for married couples also extends to unmarried individuals. And then Roe v. Wade said that right of privacy of individuals to obtain contraception includes the right to kill a child in the womb. That is the ridiculous legal foundation for abortion in America. And it's exactly what happens when the Supreme Court twists the words of the Constitution to fit an ideology. One of the most sensible parts of the Roe v. Wade opinion is when Justice Blackmun made this startling admission. If prenatal personhood is established, the case for abortion collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. Keep that in mind. According to Roe v. Wade itself, the entire case for abortion depends on dehumanizing and depersonalizing an entire group of human beings just because they're young and in the womb. Think of all the other human rights injustices that have been based on human beings not being recognized as persons. Abortion is no different. Science, reason, and legal precedent all definitively show the personhood of children in the womb, and so the Roe v. Wade opinion openly reveals where it self-destructs. The true stories of Norma McCorvey and Sandra Kano show that abortion has never been about truth, it's never been about justice, and it's never been about women. Abortion has always been about using women and killing their children for selfish ambition and profit. As feminist leader Alice Paul said, Abortion is the greatest in the exploitation of women. And since 1973, over 60 million children have been killed by legal abortion. The stories of the two women have startling similarities. Both were poor and struggling. Both were lied to and preyed upon by self-interested parties in the abortion movement. Neither of them had an abortion. Both Norma and Sandra would become passionate pro-life activists. And though they have both passed on, it is up to you and to me to take up their mission. In the words of Sandra Kano, I pledge that as long as I have breath, I will strive to see abortion ended in America. And as Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe herself said, I am dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my name. And so we want to dig a little bit deeper now that we know a little bit of the history of Roe v. Wade. One of the things that came up in there was why do women have abortions and the reasons uh, that are given why it's so important that they're able to have this ability to get this service. 
But when we look at the statistics from two different sources here, uh-huh. we can see that a huge, huge percentage of all abortions are completely elective and for non-emergency reasons. So let's just look at a few stats here real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have, um, according to this one chart here, which you can't trust everything that you see, so we got a backup source here. But this one chart says that, look, all the way down at the bottom is best to look at that first, and that is that about 75% really don't have to give a reason. You, you don't have to give a reason. Right. Most of them give something uh, about, I just don't have time, it doesn't fit, I'm not ready, those kinds of things. Right. And you'll see that in the next chart. And then another 20.5% women aborted for social or economic reasons, and that's really the biggest categories, and that is I can't afford it, and I don't want the embarrassment, or I just can't have a baby. So right. that's really, if you look at those two percentages together, that's 95%. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what the rest of these say, less than 5% are due to an incestuous, incestuous relationship or that the woman was raped, or that there is an endangerment to the life of the mother by the pregnancy, or a serious fetal abnormality. So there is such a low percentage of any of those things happening that those reasons that they give are really not justifiable. Mm-mm. But let's look at a chart that's a little bit different. Not a lot, but they do have a little bit more here. And that is, we have, at the bottom of the chart here, you see, was a victim of rape, 1%, became pregnant as a result of incest, less than a half a percent. So we're only looking at 1.5% there. And these are comparing 2004 versus 1987, by the way. Yeah, so I mean, I'll even go up to 2004 for the most recent statistics here. And problems affecting the health of the fetus or problems with my health right around 12 and 13%. But that's anything affecting your health. In our previous chart, it was serious endangerment of life by the health. Right. So there's a lot of, there's a discrepancy between the two factors there. But you'll notice that even at giving the benefit of the doubt on the other side, that's 12%, which means 88% of the time or more, the reasons for abortion are completely convenience. Yeah. Yeah. It's or not about health. Lack lack of uh, confidence or... Uh, yeah. It's just you know, not about it's health. It's not convenient. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. whatever the reason is, it's not about health. And they, they say it's everything about health. So right. let's look at our next... Uh, video here our next article and that is in reference to this supreme court justice leak of course you probably heard about the leak from justice alito on the decisions on the upcoming potential decision on roe v wade Mm -hmm. the infamous monumental legislation So, it's very important legislation, and we want to take a look at what's going on right now. The decision has not been made to overturn it, but keeping in mind that overturning it does not mean that it's suddenly going to be legal to have an abortion everywhere in the United States. 
Every state can make their own decision. That's basically what this ruling would do. Right. Is throw the decision back to the states, which is what I think most of us believe should happen. And if there are states that believe differently than others, then they can have their state laws the way they want. And if there are people that really want to cross state lines to get that service or to go live in another state, that's their option as well. But at this May 5th Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, Ted Cruz slammed the leak of Alito's draft opinion and guessed who he thought it was, probably a law clerk, but more importantly... He did call the decision a vindication for democracy where the left is actually calling it an assault on democracy. Mm. So he'll explain that in this video. But the big story here is not necessarily going to be the decision on Roe v. Wade. What I want you to pay attention here is we're digging deeper. We're digging deeper into what's happening here. And by the second video that we look at after Ted Cruz speaks, you'll hear a short video from Senator Mike Lee, and you will find out what the real underlying agenda seems to be. Hmm. So let's listen first to Ted Cruz's analysis here. The topics that this committee are discussing are of enormous importance. I want to speak briefly to the substance, and also I want to speak about this leak that occurred. On the substance, I don't know what the final opinion of the court will be. If the final opinion of the court is anything like the draft of Justice Alito's opinion that was leaked, in my judgment, that opinion is a masterful opinion. It is correct. Roe versus Wade was wrong the day it was decided, and it's been wrong every day since then. I find it interesting that Democrat senators on this committee are astonished that justices would vote to overturn Roe. They're not astonished that every Democrat-appointed justice votes to continue Roe. Nobody on this committee has a moment of doubt as to how Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson would vote, were she voting on this case. And it is interesting that many Democrats have decried this decision as a, quote, assault on democracy, because this decision is, if this is the decision of the court, is precisely the opposite. It is a victory for democracy. Part of the reason Democrats get so upset about this in Washington is the view of elected Democrats in the United States Senate on abortion is wildly out of the mainstream. The view of elected Democrats in this body is they support unlimited abortion on demand up until the moment of birth with taxpayer funding and without parental consent or notification. That is a radical and extreme position. When asked if they support abortion on demand up until the instant of birth, only 6% of Americans say they agree with that position, yet that is the position of elected Democrats in this body. And so, when the matter comes to a vote, the people vote differently than Democrats in this body want them to vote. 
If Roe versus Wade is in fact overturned, it will not mean that abortion is illegal across this country. It will mean that we will return to the way the Constitution operated for the first 185 years of our nation's history, which is that the state legislatures have the primary authority to decide what happens. That will mean bright blue states like California, like New York, at least in the short term, presumably will continue with unlimited abortions. But it will mean redder states like my home state of Texas will adopt meaningful restrictions and those laws will reflect the values and mores of their citizens. We have 50 states with Americans with very different views on this topic. And every Democrat who expresses outrage at the substance is saying those pesky voters have no right to have laws that reflect their values. Instead, they should be governed by nine lawyers, unelected, but wearing black robes. If this decision is what's reflected in that draft, it is an incredible vindication of democracy because it's saying we the people can decide matters of utmost importance. Now let me turn briefly to the leak. This leak is the most egregious violation of trust at the Supreme Court in the history of our nation. It has never happened even once that a draft opinion leaks from the court before it issues in over 200 years of our nation's history. It undermines the independence of the judiciary, it undermines the integrity of the court, and it undermines the rule of law. It is difficult to describe, particularly to those who have not worked at the court or practiced before the court, the level, the magnitude of breach of trust that this leak represents. I fear for the court's ability to continue to function as it was designed to function if justices cannot circulate opinions and have deliberation and have discussions. The way the Supreme Court works, an initial opinion circulates, but there are hundreds and sometimes thousands of changes as the justices negotiate back and forth, sometimes sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, footnote by footnote, having discussions back and forth and reaching a final decision. If that process can be cir circumvented by one unethical criminal law clerk, and I think the odds are overwhelming this was a law clerk who handed this over to a reporter, it does possibly permanent damage to the Supreme Court. And that decision to leak this opinion and to try to put political pressure on the court is the predictable culmination of a multi-year effort by Senate Democrats to demonize and politicize the court. As Senator Cornyn observed, Chuck Schumer stood on the steps of the Supreme Court in a direct effort to try to intimidate the justices of the court. The words he said, quote, I want to tell you Gorsuch. I want to tell you Kavanaugh. You have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions a direct threat to individual justices, vote the way I want you to, or you won't know what hits you. By the way, that same effort of intimidation was also reflected in a brief 
filed by Senator Whitehouse and others, that stated, quote, perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. Those threats have manifested in multiple Senate Democrats threatening to pack the court to add four new left-wing justices and increase it from nine justices to 13 justices. And that bullying campaign also was reflected in the Arabella advisors, the left-wing dark money outfit created to fight judicial battles who led a shameful bullying campaign against Justice Breyer, including hiring a mobile billboard truck to urge him to retire. And let me finally point out that this leak, which follows that tradition of it's all politics, the ends justify the means, and the obligation that a clerk owes to his or her justice doesn't matter, when this leak occurred, the same left-wing activists who were funded by left-wing billionaires who have been leading this fight, they praise the leak. Brian Fallon, who's the executive director of Demand Justice, this left-wing outfit that engages in this, and by the way, a former aide to Chuck Schumer, Brian Fallon tweeted the following, quote, SCOTUS leaks are good. Elite lawyers on both the left and the right treating the court as precious all these years have just been giving the cover to an institution that is wholly unaccountable. Rip the veil off. That's what their activists are calling. Another individual named Ian Milhauser, I don't know, but he's another left-wing activist, tweeted the following, quote, seriously, shout out to whoever the hero was within the Supreme Court who said, F it. And by the way, he didn't abbreviate F. F it, let's burn this place down. That's what the radicals on the left are calling for. Burn this place down, the Supreme Court, destroying the institutions that protect our nation. This is a sad day, and it is the culmination of deliberate decisions by elected Democrats. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Ted Cruz is very quick to point that out. And his whole point there at the end is what I'm trying to lead towards in this investigation of this leak. The leak was for a purpose. It didn't just come out. Uh, it was for a purpose. Right. And we believe it was to tear down the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And yep. Mike Lee's going to point that out. But what he talked about there about trying to pack the Supreme Court. We've heard that conversation many times before. That's one way to get their way, is to pack it to be 13 instead of 9. The other way is to just completely delegitimize them. Right. Just like they don't matter anymore, so we'll make up our own rules. And the Supreme Court doesn't matter. So Defund the police, defund the judges. Right, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. So now we're just going to carry that thought a little bit further because Mike Lee speaks very slowly and clearly but uses some terminology here that's lawyer speak. So if anybody's getting a sore neck or a sore back, they might want to take a stretch on this one while you're listening 
because you're going to hear some terms in here that you may not have heard before, but it, it, it boils down to precedent. Precedent is the word that talks about the court always, some people believe, going with a prior decision, and that's not the case. Mm-mm. Precedent should receive the respect of its existence, but that's it. Other factors should be weighed in. And the most important thing here in this evaluation with Senator Mike Lee, and I believe, first of all, I want to say this on camera right now, that I believe Ted Cruz and Mike Lee will both be justices one day. I'm going to say that right now. They are the type that could be justices. And They're be. pretty brilliant. And so Mike is going to talk about this attack on Justice Alito and his honesty. So let's listen into that. I was um, stunned a moment ago, Mr. Chairman, when I, perhaps I misunderstood you. I hope I did. I, I thought I heard you suggesting that Justice Alito had somehow been deceptive or dishonest in his testimony before the committee. I remember when he gave that testimony. And as you recited it now, he was correctly characterizing the standard under stare decisis. Stare decisis, of course, uh, we have to remember, is not an inexorable command. Far from it. Dealing with diminished standards of deference to stare decisis, to precedent, when we're dealing with the provision of the Constitution. Stare decisis takes generally the approach that it's better to have things settled uh, than settled right. Now, that's the general principle. But it has limits. One of those limits is that... uh, You know, it's one thing to follow precedent when you're interpreting a statute. A statute can be changed. The Constitution can't be changed except under the very rigorous standards outlined by the Constitution, and that's why it's difficult. It's intentionally difficult. That's also why we give diminished deference to precedent under the doctrine of stare decisis when it comes to a provision of the Constitution. That's just the beginning of analysis. The the rest of it uh, looks at the at, the, at the na- a number of factors, including the nature of the error, the quality of the reasoning that went into it, uh, 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 looking at the workability of the rules, the extent to which the doctrine at issue is proven workable and judicially manageable as a standard, and the extent to which the standard at issue has brought about disruption in various aspects of our legal system and, of course, the nature and extent of the reliance uh, and what would happen in its absence. When you look at each of those standards here, it's, it's actually quite difficult to defend Rome. And the fact that you're having to, to rely on stare decisis to begin with says something about the fact that It's hard to defend Roe as an original matter, hard to defend Roe. It's impossible to defend Roe as a textual matter. There's nothing deceptive about saying that Roe being precedent is entitled to respect. That's the whole point of the doctrine of stare decisis. The fact that the doctrine dictates that precedent be given due respect is not the end of the analysis. It states the reason for the analysis. I think it's unfortunate to denigrate the character and truthfulness of of, uh, one of the most honest, decent human beings ever to serve in the federal judiciary, 
and on the Supreme Court of the United States. I think before we denigrate them, we need to stop and consider what effect that might have on others. But more to the point here, I, I, I'd hope you'd stop and consider the fact that nothing in his answers that, that proved untruthful. Look, Roe versus Wade has been around for 48 years, nearly my entire life. I don't like it. I don't like it as a matter of policy, but more importantly, I, I find it repugnant as a matter of constitutional interpretation. It is wrong. And the opinion that's been leaked of Justice Alito is correct. I challenge anyone in this room to refute its accuracy on story decisis and on the merits themselves. It's absolutely correct. And Roe versus Wade was wrong. It, it, it flies in the face uh, not only of the text of the Constitution, but also the structure of the Constitution. Hundreds of years of American and English legal precedent, it's wrong. Notwithstanding it being wrong, it's been in place for nearly my entire life. And at no point have I ever denigrated the Supreme Court of the United States or publicly attacked its credibility for the simple reason that as a, as a lawyer and officer of the court, as a member of the bar, it's my duty to not do that. As one who has sworn an oath to uphold, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, it's my duty to not do that. Moreover, our federal judicial system, warts and all, mistakes and all, is the envy of the world. There is no judicial system like unto it anywhere in the world. It's been uh, a key source of our strength as a country. This is a place where the rule of law prevails. So notwithstanding the fact that I strongly have disagreed with Roe versus Wade, with a number of other decisions the Supreme Court has rendered, I, I do regard this as, uh, as it's not a bad court that sometimes makes good decisions. It's an amazing court that sometimes gets it wrong. To suggest, moreover, as you have today, and as many of our Democratic colleagues have in recent days, to suggest somehow that the Supreme Court, once it renders a decision, is forever barred from reconsidering that decision is wrong. We've already heard mentioned today the fact that we're all fortunate that the Supreme Court was willing to recognize it had gotten things wrong in Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh, when it revisited the issue and corrected the error in Brown versus Board of Education. But there are countless other circumstances where that's happened, where that's been necessary, and the Republic has moved on. 32 years elapsed between this, the moment the Supreme Court of the United States stepped over its bounds and improperly invalidated a state law, a New York state law, protecting bakery employees in Lochner versus New York. 32 years later, took 32 years later, took 32 years during which there were lots of other bad decisions, inconsistent decisions, decisions not rooted in the Constitution itself and contrary to the structure and history of the Constitution, but rooted instead in judicial political activism, this time conservative judicial political activism. Thank heaven above that in 1937, 32 years after the original error in Lochner versus New York, the Supreme Court corrected that error in West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. Surely, Mr. Chairman, you would not be suggesting that uh, it would be wrong for the Supreme Court of the United States to reverse itself if it had the unfortunate occasion to have to address something as horrific as the arguments that the Supreme Court embraced 
in Korematsu. Look, we've got to tread very carefully. We could lose what we have built up. A lot of us have put up for a very long time with decision-making that was wrong. Not just, and I'm not speaking morally here, although it is also that. Wrong legally, wrong constitutionally, wrong as a matter of policy and as a matter of constitutional structure. We have put up with that and still acknowledge the legitimacy of the court. We're treading into dangerous territory. Don't do that. Don't threaten and intimidate the Supreme Court of the United States. And make no mistake, that was the point of this leak. I don't know who did it for sure, but I'd, I'd bet money, and I'm not even a betting man. I'd bet money that this was done for the purpose of denigrating and delegitimizing and embarrassing and isolating those members of the Supreme Court of the United States planning on joining Justice Alito's opinion. Senator, could you wrap up your remarks? We have a couple others who are seeking recognition. And yeah, I, look, I'd be happy to. I didn't come this morning planning on addressing this. I walked in and I heard you denigrating Justice, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett and Justice Gorsuch. This is, uh, this is not something I can just ignore. So I, I appreciate your desire to stick to the program. I would love to have stuck to the program today. The Supreme Court would have loved to have stuck to the program. The justices on the Supreme Court, who happen to have been uh, appointed by, uh, by Republicans, would love to have stuck to the program and not had their addresses publicly disclosed with individuals being encouraged to go to their house and protest, something that has no place in our republic. You go to the home of a public official to protest, that is an implicit threat. You show up where someone sleeps and raises children. That's an implicit threat of physical violence. We deserve better than this. And I hope that each of my colleagues on this committee, regardless of their party affiliation or their position on Roe versus Wade, will condemn these actions and will condemn and distance themselves from any and all actions to threaten, intimidate, harass, or delegitimize the court itself or those justices thought to be joining this opinion. Thank you. There's no way that anyone who has actually been intellectually honest with themselves could possibly refute the accuracy of what he was saying. That's right. Ending Roe v. Wade does not allow abortion or does not outlaw abortion. Either way. No. Yeah. It's going to give the rights back to the states to pass their own laws. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And the biggest thing is this leak and the Ted how Ted Cruz said this is the first time in over a hundred and some years that this has ever happened. And now this is this inference that Samuel Alito is, is being dishonest <clears throat> by simply saying that there's a precedent and it deserves respect is absolute manipulation. And so that's why yep. it is ugly. It is ugly because it's ugly, politics ugly. and there's just lies, 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 lies. So, Shall we close out yes. the ugly truth? And thank you for listening to The Ugly Truth, because they can't stop us, because we're ready to fight, trying to brainwash us, but we won't let freedom die, the whole world's brainwashed. Everybody pick a team, start a riot in the streets, the whole world's brainwashed. It's us against them, and ain't you against me. The Ugly Truth, hard to listen to, but impossible to ignore.